Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. So for the first two years or so of the life of the Colin McEnroe show, we opened the show every day with this song. Don't look now, but there's another rocky road. Another heavy wild, another much too heavy, heavy low. Today I'm going to face it, yeah, because I'm sick of teasing any other way. Nobody said the race was fair, but I'm going to keep running just the same. Today, today, the first day, the best of my life. But here comes another heartbreak Benefit of the doubt I give it Control of my life I gotta take Cause I'm alive And that's reason enough For me to bust a smile I've arrived And now I wanna stay For a little while Today, today It's the first day Of the rest of my life Let's go and then Kion would talk, talk just for a little while. She had like 15 seconds during this guitar break and 17 seconds during the other, the other one. And So we kept it that way for about two years. We didn't have comedy intros at the beginning or anything like that. And there were people who really hated the song. I, I could swear to God, one of them sitting here in the studio. But he, he says no. Uh, there, but there were people who really hated it and wanted us to get rid of it. And then people who wanted to know what it was. To this day, because it's been used, I think we're going to stop a, a, after today. But for the whole life of our show, a little bit of the instrumental there is used behind our promos and uh, behind what we call the billboard that precedes the news. I'll, I'll still every once in a while get an email saying, what is that? And I'll, whenever I say it's Prince, particularly if it's just the instrumental, that people are often very surprised there. The people contacting me are people who think they, they don't like Prince. Anyway, um, how could we not talk about Prince today? It's, uh, he's part of the DNA of our show. But then I think he's kind of the part of the DNA of everybody, too. He's, uh, he's, he's been a hard musician or musical presence to avoid. Uh, but he's also uh, been a hard musical presence to completely embrace. Uh, it's hard to find somebody. I think there aren't that many people who say own all of the Prince CDs. You could love Prince and own about five of his CDs and be completely unaware of ten other ones, you know, not even know they exist, never mind that you don't like them. So, uh, But there's something beyond that, too, beyond the actual music. So we're going to do the notes today. We're going to talk about uh, Prince. We're also, uh, if time permits, and we hope it does, uh, talk about an unusual thing that happened in stand-up comedy, uh, including that it sort of started in March and, and culminated last night. Now, we don't know too much about what happened last night. Anyway, we'll tell you about that later. Joining us in studio, well, uh, Jim Chapterley. It's a good thing that he is here. He's an Emmy Award winning musician, producer, composer, recording engineer, uh, and a guitar hero. A Prince was a new mean guitarist himself. Uh, Teresa Kramer is here with us. She's a writer and editor of E-Content Magazine and founding editor of The Cut. Uh, which is a magazine for the disgruntled young adults of Connecticut. James Hanley is your co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. Uh, and then making a surprise appearance, <laughs> <laughs> an unscheduled surprise appearance, but all the more delightful for that. Uh, and it's basically because – are we telling this backstory? Sure, if you want me well, to. You, you, explain why Carolyn is here today. Well, last night I was on my way to Carolyn's house to watch the second season of Catastrophe on Amazon, and I got rear-ended. And right in front of her house, basically. And then um, 
So my car had to be towed. So she then had to bring me home last night. And I was just going to ask her to cover for me today and come do the show. But she kindly offered to just bring me here instead. So now you've got two for the price of one. All right. So, <laughs> yeah, we have four nose panelists. Uh, and uh, Carolyn will be especially helpful. Break glass in case of comedy emergency uh, <laughs> when we get to the Margaret Cho, Jerry Seinfeld topic, if we make it there. So we are going to talk a little bit about Prince at first. This is a guy who really is a stew of contradictions, was a guy who's a stew of contradictions. I find myself being profoundly sad uh, when I heard about his death yesterday. I heard about it halfway through a show that we were doing about bulldozers. And I didn't really feel like I could talk about Prince in the middle of the bulldozer show. But because of the, our long history with him and what he's meant to me at times, uh, I was very, very sad about this. But then this is a guy who, I don't know, he was very hard to get your arms all the way around. He certainly had some uh, other ideas. I didn't give very, very many interviews. Terry Gross is stumped today. She doesn't have like a big, long <laughs> Prince interview in the can because hardly anybody does. But some of his ideas uh, seem a little uh, regressive and oppressive even at times. So we're going to talk a little bit about him and, and, and what he's meant to various people. Um, and, Teresa, I'm going to stay with you for just a second because uh, as we were emailing around, you, you were the first person to use the word contradictions. And, I mean, this is, this is what he is, really, just this morass of contradictions. Yeah. So for, you know, in Prince's heyday, I was too young to really appreciate what was going on. I was busy listening to, like, my Donald Duck records. But, um, but as I grew older and became more aware of him, the thing that struck me about him is he is – at once this sort of little man who is incredibly just like oozes sex, but at the same time is also sort of uh, gender bending, but then at, then is also a deeply devout Jehovah's Witness. And, you, and you, know, put, you put all these things together and you just have one incredibly complex and very interesting individual. Yeah. And James, you know, I, I was thinking that had we decided to do a comedy intro today, which I think would have been inappropriate, but certainly do a comedy intro where Prince rings your doorbell, which he did. He did. He was sufficiently imbued with the whole Jehovah's Witness thing that he was showing up at people's house with copies of The Watchtower. I mean, that would be a very... The story I heard was that it happened to be a couple of Jews on Yom Kippur, but they were Prince fans, so yeah, they let right. him in let anyway him in, yeah, and talked so. to him. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I mean, that would, that would, that's a bit that would have written itself, but also Prince talking to his manager about how he's going to drop his name in favor of a symbol that doesn't exist in typography and can't be spoken around uh, aloud. This is like the worst career move ever. You know, it's like, <laughs> you're going to do what? <laughs> you want, you want to like not have a name anymore and the thing you are? can't be typed I mean or well, said or said what are you thinking uh, but so there's many so many ways I mean we do love artists who go to extremes even if the extremes they go to sometimes uh, are not palatable the, the interesting thing about the symbol is that that was at least in part to punish Warner Brothers mm -hmm. and and so um, I think that's one of the most interesting things about him actually is that he sort of existed and had this huge musical influence across the universe without actually buying into the commercial system of music and he his whole sort of he he centered his life in in Minneapolis and Paisley Park was kind of place that actually um, that sort of had a musical identity. People who lived locally went to concerts, the impromptu concerts at his house and things like that. And um, he really had a very uh, a very strong sense of the injustice of the contract he had gotten himself into at a very young age. 
And so the whole idea of him uh, changing his name to a symbol, you know, making it impossible for them to publicize him in that traditional way. And at the same time, he was writing, he was signing his checks with a slave written uh, on the checks. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had a real sense of the commercial exploitation. And you get a sense of somebody learning very, very fast as he's going through his musical development and becoming something that, as as you say, is an incredibly complex person. And some of the time I always thought that maybe he was actually – you know, setting something up, you know, taking a new direction, like like even the Jehovah's Witness side of it was, uh, I know he was supposedly a devout Jehovah's Witness, but it seemed like constantly turning to a new direction and linking that with his music and then not being not being able to be interpreted that this was something entirely new. And I think that that was something, that, that was always something, I never was disinterested in it, his his development. He always had something new Something, so, something unexpected that you had to sort of explain to yourself. And yeah, I mean, but even early on, when he he was actually brought up a Seventh Day Adventist a little bit anyway, and very early on, before the real hardcore turn to, I guess that's the wrong way to put it, to uh, being a Jehovah's Witness, uh, you know, there was this uh, junction which might as well be there between. I used to just my shorthand for him. I was a rock critic still, I think, in the eighties was Sex and Jesus, and there's no reason why Sex and Jesus can't go together. I mean, Saint Augustine and maybe a little bit Paul and people like that kind of decided that that they were incompatible for some people, but they really don't have to. Me. Uh, and I, that clearly was the way that he felt about it. You know, Carolyn, I want to talk about um, also the way that, I mean, you know, James talked about Paisley Park. Well, Paisley Park is sort of like his Graceland or Neverland Ranch, except that Graceland and Neverland Ranch, our, our sense is those places became uh, uh, places where incredible dysfunction was being covered up, right? As Elvis deteriorated, Graceland just became this, uh, you know, this citadel against the world. And Neverland Ranch, I mean, we don't even need to talk about it, but I mean, we, we certainly know what has been alleged about what was happening there. And, you know, although Prince was really weird and uh, sometimes depicted as really kind of crazy, that he wasn't quite the same kind of – you didn't get the feeling he was covering up anything other than his private life, which was probably quite a greenhouse of, you know, exciting flowers. But, um, but, you know – Are flowers a euphemism for (laughs) – I was trying to be – Okay. So tasteful. Yes. But you know what what I'm saying? I mean, you know, obviously he he certainly had a private life, but I don't think that – you know, he wasn't a recluse for the same reason that Elvis and Michael Jackson were. <laughs> uh, well, I, I mean, I guess, uh, I, you know, I never really invested much time and thought into Prince. I mean, I liked Prince music, and Teresa and I were talking about uh, we were both uh, class of 99 in high school. So, I mean, his party like it's 1999 was essentially just like an anthem for my high school experience. Uh, obviously, it was like our prom song and so, I, I mean, I, Prince was kind of part of my growing up, but I, I, never, I never had this, like, you know, deep knowledge for him. I wasn't fully invested into him as an artist or his, you know, backstory. And a lot of stuff that I am, you know, learning and hearing now is kind of for the first time. <laughs> he just, this, has, this is one of those things where uh, – you know, it, it was shocking to hear that he's like not in the world, not going to be making music and he's no longer a presence. But for me, this didn't have that impact of, you know, when like earlier this year when David Bowie died, I, I was literally like bedridden and and going through something that I didn't even know how to handle. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we, we've saved James for uh, for excuse me, Jim for last because 
And you're sort of getting to be the grim reaper of music. You did the David Bowie show. You did the George Martin show. You did, I know. You know. But every day you have to know that Keith Richards wakes up and goes, <laughs> say what? Yeah. Just, it really isn't fair, is it, somehow? Uh, we, we know that about uh, him. So, I mean, to Carolyn's point, though, I think a lot of people, a lot of people who might be a little bit more or even substantially more invested with Prince would still say, but I couldn't go all the way, like – the Black Album or – I mean just pick well, something. You know? I don't think anyone could go all the way because he had 39 albums <laughs> and you would still be li- – mean, yeah. he was writing a song a day for a while for like three years. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of songs. Yeah. Uh, and so, at some point, this archive will be tapped and there will be huge legal wranglings over who is – I don't know if he had children. I n- I've never – He does. He's divorced and I believe they have one kid. Oh, OK. Mm-hmm. Marty Ooh. Prince. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So well, yeah. So, I so mean, there, there's a lot there, obviously. And, yeah, and, and to yeah. James's point, obviously, there, you know, there were. I mean, the song that we use that somebody didn't like so much. I mean, he he probably didn't like it that much. That's from a song called "The Vault," uh, from an album called "The Vault," which was symbolic of his feud with Warner Brothers. And that was his internet release, right? Right. Which he made more money from than he made from Purple Rain, which sold 14 million copies. Right. No, that was a different one. That was different from The Vault. But he put out a whole bunch of stuff from The, from the Vault, which is stuff he just needed to get out of the contract. He had right, to do right, that one more right. album, he fulfilled, one more album. I think he fulfilled that six-record contract yeah. for $100 million, <laughs> um, which, which isn't bad folding money when you're walking away from something. I don't something. feel all that bad for him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, what I find interesting about him is, is he was sort of – he had this overarching vision for who he was going to be, maybe not in the particular, but he emerged at 18 or 19 sort of fully formed and independent and playing all the, the instruments on his record. And, and Warner Brothers at the time was artist-friendly, coming off of Randy Newman and Ry Cooter and all these sort of eccentric artists. And, and he, had to, he had to actually record a song in front of Lenny Warnaker, who was the president of Warner Brothers, and, and then they got it. They said, oh, we, sure. Total artistic control. That was him getting artistic control. (laughs) And actually, that's the kick drum sample he used in 1999. (laughs) Um, So – and the other thing I thought was interesting is that he emerged out of a a sort of a post-punk period where a lot of popular music was – and he wasn't really punk, but he was every bit as rebellious as any punk I think also he's a real musical sponge and he did soak up some of that stuff. Uh, I mean, to me. Sure. Um, but he also soaked up Joni Mitchell. Right, exactly. You know? Well, we'll be coming to that at the end of the show. But yeah. yeah, I can never take the place of your man. Sounds to me a lot like it could be easily on the gross point blank, uh, you know, 80s soundtrack. Right, with, right. I mean, it sounds a lot like uh, Billy Idol's Dancing with Myself. And I even wonder if, oh no, let's go. Uh, in Let's Go Crazy is a little bit of a Ramones shout right, out right. too. I mean, I, I think he does sound more. I want to just play one little clip uh, with you in mind. Uh, this guy's musicianship was uh, amazing at times. Uh, his arrangements were incredible, his use of charts. And so on the vault, uh, this is another cut on the vault where, and you never quite know what's going on because he's not always telling us the truth. Um, but he appears to be, because this was famously a release that he kind of didn't care that much about. He was just getting it done. He appears to be conducting the session musicians uh, in the middle of this. This is right at the, of the end of a song, a very sexist song called It's About That Walk. Keep playing. Uh. Vegas on the sea. 
So first you hear him say, keep playing. <laughs> then I think he calls out a key. Uh, then he says, remember that ending I was talking about? <laughs> On the one. So, which you don't, with L. Yeah, yeah, which you don't, I mean, you might say that in a rehearsal, but it's unusual to hear that. And, and on a recording, have it sound so good. Recording too. feels so good and so authentic that you're like, yeah, that's the take, you yeah. know. And 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 he, he certainly. One thing is, he could play all the instruments himself, but when he did have a band, they were a, a badass band. And and, and I'll uh, I'll I'll do a NPR trick by saying. Can I say that? Yeah. Having just said that. Right. <laughs> they were a badass band. We're going to take a break here. Uh, we're in, uh, doing one of our fundraising shows. So we're not going away for fundraising right now, but we have to take a, take a quick break. We'll come back with more of Teresa and James and Carolyn and Jim. All right, we're back talking about Prince uh, here on the nose. By the way, if you want to call in, 860-275-7266, that's the number, 860-275-7266. We're live here in the afternoon, or definitely tweet at us. Uh, I think Greg Hill right now is working on the, uh, there's like a five-stroke Unicode or four-stroke Unicode way of making something like the Prince symbol. Uh, so I'm sure Greg Hill's working on that right now. You have to have the right fonts for it, though. So uh, with us in studio is uh, – anyway, you can tweet us at WNPR. Colin, Jim Chapdelaine, Teresa Kramer, and James Hanley, and Carolyn Payne with us here in the studio. Uh, so much to say. So little time uh, in which to say it. Although, James, one of the things that fascinates me, too, you know, going back to the complexity of, of Prince, the fact that you know, he seems at times to be a figure of liberation or a figure of oppression, uh, a figure of licentiousness, a figure of censoriousness is that there's like a real – there's always a disconnect between music and words, right? It's why Ronald Reagan thought that Born in the USA would be a good campaign song. You really listen to it very carefully. Or why people are always using that Green Day song, Good Riddance or whatever it's called, uh, to be like this sentimental, oh, goodbye. And so, uh, you know, people do this with Prince, I think, because he's so complicated. Um, m- my story about this is when my son was very little, he got into Prince. Like he was like eight. And I would hear this little tiny voice coming down the stairs singing along with Sign of the Times. You know, so I'd hear this little tiny child's voice going, at home there's 17-year-old boys and their idea of fun is being on crack, joining the disciples, high on crack, toting a machine gun. I'd be thinking a child should not be singing that song. <laughs> um, but v- various versions of that. Um, happen all the time, right? Wolfie's favorite song is Seven, which is clearly based on the book of Revelations. Wolfie's an atheist, you know. Uh, That that what's in the song, what Prince puts in the song, and what people hear out of the song, there's often a big disconnect. 
Well, I think it's, uh, you know, the thing that comes to mind, the word that comes to mind is a kind of provocation that lies behind this. That um, I think it's always interesting when an artist of any kind, whether it's a musician or a filmmaker or a writer, who can actually operate outside of the commercial sphere yet be inside it at the same time. And it offers a lot of opportunities for provocation. And I think, you know, when I when I hear the lyrics of different uh, of different Prince songs, and also reading some of the things that uh, you know, who he was, what his identity was. It all seems to it all seems to say that there's somebody here who's experimenting a lot, who's actually provoking a response, and who's actually having an artistic life that is really intense and alive in the midst of something commercial. And I mean, that's one of my sort of favorite sort of things about talking about films that that filmmakers often exist on a knife edge. You know, some really good filmmakers have to make commercial films that are sort of almost throwaways and then they get to make the films they really want to make and they get to produce something really provocative. And I think the fact, going back to his sort of maintaining his base in Minnesota uh, with, his, with the community where he grew up and having that sort of identity appear in his in his music i think um this is something that uh, makes me think about him that he is he is that's what appeals to people is the unpredictability and the fact that he's able to maintain this identity even if you don't know all of the things like for instance you can be t- uh, immensely drawn by certain lyrics but also repelled by others i mean i certainly found that listening to some of the songs and i i thought you know well what exactly is his identity? Maybe the idea is that his identity isn't visible. And maybe well, we're I, not supposed to know. Yes, exactly. Because he's private. I think he um, he also understood this, right? I don't know who else watched the you know thirty minute Kevin Smith video that we yeah, were sent yeah. this week, but you know Kevin Smith sort of gets almost forced into making this documentary where. People are just reacting to this new Prince album. I'm not even sure what album it was or if it was one that was ever released. But And Prince just kind of made him do this like by not taking no for an answer. And, you know, people just wanted to talk about the religious aspect of things. And then at some point someone says, I think he's talking about hating white people. And when Kevin Smith goes back to Prince and says... You know, this is they're talking about these lyrics and they think and he's like, well, what's the point? And, you know, people are going to think what they're going to take whatever they want to take away from it. And I can't go argue with them about that. That's what the music is supposed to do. They're supposed to take away what they take away from it. And he's also doing it visually as well, by the way he dressed and and his appearances were often like pushing buttons and not being clear about what is his sexual identity, what is his his uh, his emotional identity, the, the, the characters that he takes on when he's when he was singing certain songs. All of those things were like going in an, in an opposite direction when you thought you knew what he was at. And it goes back to this thing of, of retaining your complete freedom as an artist if you maintain your identity kind of secret in the background and that you don't share it in the commercial way that is encouraged and and was you know the expectation for example with a record contract that although you may have artistic control you're expected to do certain things to actually you know foster the purchase of the material and to actually be a figure on the world stage which actually makes that contract worthwhile well i always see with artists they're artists are driven by two things either craft or culture so some people are they're driven to just become part of this culture like the fame and you know and yeah. then some people yeah. just 
really there. It's about creating art. And Prince is one of those people. He was driven by the craft, not right. getting into the That's culture. Very well put. Yes, I agree. There, you know, there's also something where he was presenting himself visually, to James's point, uh, very multiculturally. And and if you think about 1999, the f- the video is the first people we see are these two white girls singing the first line. Then the second line is the guitar player, Jesse, and he doesn't appear till the third line. Um, and, and, that's, and that's a huge hit. And so the star isn't even in it until right. the third line. He well, doesn't. also, I mean, he, one of the other ways in which he is this conundrum is that um, women are really important artistically to him. He works with a lot of women. He writes for a lot of women, uh, whether it, it's Sheena Easton or Sheila E. or uh, Manic Monday or, I mean, a lot of these songs are sort of Sinead written. Sinead O'Connor, Sh- which is Sinead perhaps Sinead the weirdest O'Connor. of Sh- all One of Shaka Khan's greatest right. songs. Wendy you know? and Lisa. Yeah, Wendy and Lisa are these musicians. In fact, uh, Purple Rain is really about uh, art, uh, giving artistic license and credibility to the women in your band, right? That's the thing that the right. kid, his character, has to learn. So there's, I mean, there's all of that and Tom Ashwick was interviewing some of the people uh, who, that he worked with in the studio who were often women sound engineers. And, and they were saying, yes, he was very open to us and very open to, to women. But then there's this incredible objectification of women too. <laughs> I mean you can't get away from that. Well, there's Kiss like, had the woman with – you don't see her face, right? I, I mean, you know, you can have a professional relationship with women you have a professional relationship with and then objectify the women you actually do have a sexual relationship with or maybe not objectify but objectify, but sexualize the people you are actually – I mean, I don't think anyone – like Jim's wife isn't going to complain that he like, you know, objectifies her, I don't think, because they have. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> I don't objectify anybody. <laughs> My point being is you have different types of relationships and you can have different types of um, reactions isn't the right word I'm looking for. I don't know what the word I'm looking well, that, for is. I, one thing I have to tell yeah. you is I don't think marriage counseling is you're not going to be your next <laughs> <laughs> I, I We were doing do so well. I'll go, I'll go apologize to you, you right know, We're going to have to go to a break, yeah. break pretty soon. I just want to play one little bit of uh, Prince music. And Wolfie, you might have to give it back to me at the end of this. But one thing that you, we do know is he wasn't always serious. He seemed dead serious at times. He's kind of like Dylan that way. You don't, know when he's, you don't know when he's kidding and when he's not. This is a, this is a very obscure song called Pretty Man uh, where he basically makes fun of his own preening image. So that's him kind of making fun of the whole Prince image. Um, you know, it's obviously a little bit of a joke to him at times as well. Uh, we should never forget that about him, as deadly serious as he occasionally also seems. We're going to take a quick break here. If this conversation is fun for you and you like it, you enjoy it, please uh, think about making a donation here. We have uh, just a few minutes of a pledge break, then we'll be back with more. We may be doing more Prince. We might be switching over to Margaret Show and Jerry Seinfeld. We'll debate that while you're calling these very nice people. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Alexandra Ingber. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Morris Day. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff partying like it's 1999, go to our website, wnpr.org. 
On Monday's show, more campaign analysis, including a chat with Jane Sanders. And now, back to Colin. All right. One thing I have to say before we switch topics is a point that was driven home to us very forcefully today is the degree to which Prince, because, in fact, he managed his, his music very differently from most other musicians, particularly here in 2016, it, we couldn't get all kinds of things that we wanted because there's nothing on Spotify and there's nothing on Pandora and stuff has been ruthlessly scraped off of YouTube. And, I mean, he just uh, didn't mess around about that. And it was actually very difficult to put together the musical snippets. I had to go home and find actual physical CDs uh, for us to get some of the stuff that we wanted today. So, And Wolfie had to do all kinds of scampering around. So uh, it was I, I salute everybody who helped us uh, pull the music together. It was not easy. Okay, so we're going to switch gears here. And uh, with us are Teresa Kramer, James Hanley, Carolyn Payne, Jim Chapdelaine. So uh, we make use of Jim's musicianship when we talk about Prince. But, you know, it works out. We have this bonus comedian here. Well, uh, we're talk- going to be talking about a comedian meltdown. And her Uber driver. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Um, so it couldn't have gone – first of all, uh, as Carolyn Payne will tell you, all comedy clubs should be called the stress factory. Uh, <laughs> but it couldn't have gone worse for Margaret Cho on, Mar- on uh, March 28th at the stress factory where she made some jokes that the audience didn't like. Um, some of them were, I think, uh, perceived as, well, gay jokes uh, uh, and one about rape. Uh, and they, she was heckled. People asked for their money back. Uh, the crowd really turned on her. Uh, she said, you will never get a cent of the money back that you paid. That was captured on a video phone. A woman in the crowd tried to take the microphone from Margaret Cho. It just is like it's every comedian's nightmare, and it's just uh, – it just couldn't be worse. And so there's nothing to be done but walk away and just you know live to fight another day, except that no. Uh, Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld said – well, why don't we handle this differently? What if this happened in the workplace? How would it get handled? Uh, so uh, Jerry Seinfeld decided that uh, would be – well, actually, he, what he decided was maybe he and Margaret Cho should go back to this club, try to get the crowd together, and see if they could sort of patch things up a little bit. You're already shaking your head over there. This is awful. Well, what, <laughs> well, what, they, what they didn't mention is he took each person in the audience for a ride in his car to get coffee. <laughs> right. Uh, so I, why is it awful? Okay, well, first of all, everybody who has done comedy like has bombed, and and you just don't get a do over. And and my thing, so it's not just that they set up this like do over situation. He also Jerry Seinfeld did a set, and then they did a panel discussion about what went wrong for Margaret Cho, and then she had to do a set, which sounds like a nightmare to me. Like I just put myself in her shoes of like. Because, you know, I, you've, I've bombed on stage. It's happened. And just the thought of then the, the aftermath of that being that now Jerry Seinfeld's going to open for me. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to have to talk, have a talk back with the audience about what I did wrong. It's encourage more people to bomb. That's for sure. And then, and then I have to go up there and, and tr- try to write this? Like, that's a nightmare. Like, I would rather remove my spleen with a bobby <laughs> pin than go through that. And now, you know, here she is doing this. And, I mean, it's just kind of interesting to me. I, I was saying this before the show that for, with, that it's Margaret Cho, who I feel is a comedian, that kind of needs a do-over for her whole career. Ooh. I know. I this know. is <laughs> Carolyn Payne's diss track. <laughs> I, I thought it was a monster train wreck, the whole idea of a, a, a redo. I agree totally. I mean, it, that seems to fly in the face completely with spontaneity and dealing with consequences in comedy. 
because I mean, I, I've always thought that Margaret Cho, I sort of have a, I, I, that rang a, a, a chord for me, the idea that she needs to change her sort of approach to comedy a little, because what is remarkable about her to me is how she externalizes tension and stress in her act. And that makes it really funny, but also edgy and uncomfortable, Uncomfortable, right. And And if you hit the right dynamic in a club, I can see maybe you know sort of a nexus of the of the insecure at the club that it sort of blows a fuse in each of them and then you get something like this happen but that's I would say, okay, things happen. That happens. And so you then right. move on. Part of live performing is that yeah. it is that high-risk situation where you exactly. don't get that do-over. I mean, now this is like opening the door to, you know, live theater. Like, oh, yeah. that was not a great show. All right, guys, don't worry. We're going to get a do-over. <laughs> you can come back, back in a month and we'll, we'll just – we'll write this. And, I think and, 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 and we're – sorry. And worst of all is the, is the idea that some more – professional comedian should come along and sort of try and fix it. But he's positioned himself as Jerry the Redeemer (laughs) because he he, for Michael when Michael Richards went both of these are situations where the comedian lost control of the mic and the audience Mm -hmm. and then went after the audience because they lost control. And in both cases, Jerry swooped in And rescue them because he has such affection for comedians, I assume. I mean, it's, I don't well, think it's performance art for him, but who's are, the next one that will bomb that he will save? I mean, this was filmed for his show. Yeah. So you have to. What were you going to say, Teresa? Well, one of the questions I have is sort of what was Jerry's motivation in doing this? Because so I, f- I first Mother heard about issues. this Margaret Cho thing a couple of weeks ago on a podcast I listened to hosted by comedians. And the consensus seemed to be it wasn't just like that she bombed. It was that she might have been like on something and not totally there and just it was like a mess of a show. And um, but at the same time, I am almost always ready to blame a crowd in a setting like this for just not bothering to get a joke. Because so, for instance, the same comedian that of uh, the podcast, his name's Kurt Metzger, and he tells this story all the time where he was telling what if you bother to listen to it all the way through, is a pro-gay marriage joke, but sets it up by saying that he is against gay marriage and a woman just came up and threw a drink in his face before he could get to the punchline. He was like, what? What is that? And there's a that's a problem in comedy right now that people just don't bother to listen to the joke all the way through or they don't understand the point of the joke and they get mad. And Jerry Seinfeld has been talking about this a lot lately in terms of I don't do colleges, not just J- not just Jerry, Chris Rock, mm-hmm. lots of comedians. I won't do colleges anymore. They're too sensitive. They get mad at every joke you tell. And I wonder if that's part of his motivation here is to be like, listen, crowd, it doesn't matter if you find her jokes a little bit offensive. You need to bother to listen to them. But I think also, you know, um, we've entered an era where we're fascinated in, in about the process and we're bombarded with information about the process of doing stand-up comedy. I mean, growing up, you know, Jim and I didn't like w- need to know how Milton Berle was feeling about mm-hmm. like, you know, his act or where his jokes came from and there wasn't really a, a chance or a desire to go deeper into Milton Berle. Uh, you know, and now there are just so many but podcasts and so green, many that's shows. A different story. Different. But, you know, I mean, to me, that's been a big change is that, you know, Judd, Judd Apatow was uh, being interviewed on Terry 
Jerry Gross, and he was saying that he got an interview with Jerry Seinfeld when he was in high school, yeah. you know, because nobody wanted to talk to comedians. So he gave the call letters of his high school radio station, and the publicist said, oh, great. Somebody wants to talk to my client. Nobody cares about comedians. It just make us laugh and get out of here. But now it's like this whole thing. It's like it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's a comedy culture nowadays. Like everyone is very intrigued by the process and, and the failures. Like it almost is kind of a smart career move to have kind of something epically destructive happen to you. And then, you know, more people, it's like, oh, great. Now everyone has seen you have this horrible thing happen. And well, that's, that's probably kinda... the worst you'll ever be. So everything is up from, from now yeah, on. Yeah, set the bar low. So if she just <laughs> even tells a chicken joke crossing the road, mm-hmm. that's up. So you're sure. saying a it's a kind of a reset. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. It, 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 is, it is kind of a, an interesting uh, place where, and, and podcast definitely – um, it's also a com- comedy style thing, too, because Milton Berle was telling sort of not stock jokes, but yeah, they were jo- jokes. Actually, Jonathan McNichol is actually pointing out that Milton Berle probably didn't actually have a process. So yeah. really, but that, that's sort of my point, <laughs> yeah. though. Hey, we have to sort of wrap that up and just have time for your recommendations uh, and uh, because we have to go out a little bit early because, once again, we're going to ask you to support this show. So uh, any, do you have a quick recommendation? You sure. I just Drive like, carefully. That would be one of them. I, yes, drive <laughs> carefully. Um, don't go to Carolyn's house. And binge. <laughs> Listen to I just binge listened to a podcast called Somebody Knows Something, and if you were into the serial thing, it's another sort of true crime kind of thing. Only this one, the person is Eastern Canada. A little kid goes missing, hasn't been found in like forty something years. It's it's by the CBC Radio. It's pretty good. I like it. James, uh, two film festivals at Sydney Studio that are at this time of year that are really great. Real Youth Hartford Film Festival, which is tomorrow, uh, Saturday, um, and. Uh, you can uh, get there around 5 o'clock and get to see some really great films by young people from Hartford schools and around the Hartford area. And then we have the uh, – on May 7th, we have Trinity Film Festival, which is films from all over the country. Um, really, in the past, there have been some amazing films, and that will be on May 7th and in, in the afternoon. And uh, the uh, whole evening concludes with an award ceremony and a party. Sounds great. Uh, Trinity Cine Studio. Carolyn, you don't have to have a recommendation. You didn't uh, know you were going to be on the show. Th- I'll throw one in uh, there. Uh, so uh, tomorrow night at City Hall is the Trash and Fashion Show. It's a great annual event. Um, I am not going to be there this year for the first time uh, ever. I'm actually going to be out of town performing, unfortunately. But uh, you should go. Tickets are still available. You can go to trashandfashion.com. And it's really fun to see people strut the runway in literally garbage and just look so, so sexy doing it. <laughs> All right. Jim Chapter. I, I have two very uh, unusual uh, endorsements here. <laughs> I'm getting surgery uh, next Tuesday. And, and, it, it, and in advance of that, I, uh, uh, I purchased some whiskey um, at Harvest Wines, which is – and they have a great place. selection. They're really nice people. They're very – they'll help you find some stuff. And secondly, uh, I, in this surgery, I had to totally abandon my dignity and go and get one of those chairs that you sit in the shower in. <laughs> And and I got that from my good friend Sandy at Advanced Home Medical Supplies where she allowed me to retain a little bit of my dignity. So if you need one of those chairs or a walker or a scooter, you go see my friend Sandy. That's the most depressing. Is that horrible? That's like, what I've that's by, my by life. By a is. wide margin, that was the that's, most depressing. That's my life right ever. now. Well, I feel like I should just um, endorse uh, 
something having to do with Prince, and it was really easy for me. I mean, everybody has the song that they started humming once they digested the horrible news and the sa- their own sadness, the song that they hummed for the rest of the afternoon or sang to themselves or ran through their head. And oddly enough, for me, it wasn't actually uh, a song by Pr- it was a song written by Prince. It was a song written by Joni Mitchell. Uh, however, it is uh, on my iPod probably one of the songs I listen to you know, more than any other. It's on the playlist that I listen to the most. I am often hearing hearing it when I fall asleep at night. And it reminds me that not only was he an amazing songwriter for his own work and an amazing songwriter whose work was covered by other people, but occasionally he took it upon himself to sing somebody else's song. And and when he did that, he would often find harmonics uh, in there that, that, that hadn't been put in there before. And I mean, once again, this guy's style, his whole approach to everything he did was so amazingly idiosyncratic that I kind of wish he'd done a lot more covers. I wish there was like one great big Prince cover CD where, you know, he picked uh, 20 songs and and did them. But uh, this is him singing uh, the Joni Mitchell song, A Case of You. These lines, lines. Good job. 